like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us. We are definitely glad that you're here considering we missed last week. As Joshua mentioned, uh, we are not canceling church last week because we don't want to be with you. Uh, We didn't cancel because we didn't want to worship. We didn't cancel because we didn't want to hear God's word. We canceled because we thought there was no glory in putting any of you at risk. So we hope that you were able to worship at home in some way. Hope that you were able to pray together as a family, read scripture together, but we're glad that we're back here. Now I want to start off this morning with a question. And that question is, why? Do you ever ask yourself, why? You work in a job and you get way too much blame and you never get enough of the credit. The boss is constantly breathing down your neck when your plate is full and yet the people over there have nothing to do. And they slack off and they go unnoticed and you get frustrated. You get burnt out. You wonder, why do I even deal with this? Why do I bother? Why do I waste my time here? No one appreciates me. Maybe you feel that way about your marriage. The sparks don't quite fly the way they used to. Sometimes you feel unappreciated. Sometimes you feel like your spouse takes you for granted. And you wonder, why did I ever get myself into this? Why did I ever marry this person? Why don't I just leave and just start fresh? I'm tired of it. Maybe you're a college student. And you look at your workload and you're completely overwhelmed. And then you look at your degree program and you realize that the light at the end of the tunnel is a long way away. And then when you do graduate, you're not going to be making that much money. And you're going to have a lot of student loans left to pay. And you wonder, why? Why am I here? Why am I putting myself through this? Why did I voluntarily choose this? You're frustrated. You're burnt out. You're tired. You're fed up. Well, if it makes you feel any better, John may have been feeling this way too as he wrote the book of 1 John, where we're going to be for the next several weeks. Now, John was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And in fact, he was one of Jesus' closest of those 12. Jesus had three disciples that seemed to be a little bit closer than even the other nine. Those three were Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, they got to see things that the other nine disciples didn't get to see. They got to hear Jesus say things the other nine disciples didn't get to hear him say. John, in his own gospel, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And when Jesus died on the cross, John's the one who took Mary in to live with him and his family. Clearly, John had a unique relationship with Jesus. But now here we are 50 years later, and John's a church leader probably operating out of Ephesus. He's preached, he's led, he's taught, he's seen amazing things, he's heard amazing things, he's seen people's lives changed. But now he might be asking himself, why? Why did I even bother with this? Why do I devote myself to this? Was this just a complete waste of time? Well, we're going to see why John may be having those feelings here in just a second as we start our series, Because He First Loved Us, in the book of 1 John. But before we do that, let's pray together, and then we'll jump into our text. Father God, there are times when every single one of us will ask why. We'll get fed up, we'll get tired, burn out, 
whether it's our jobs, our marriages, our educations, even our spiritual lives, God. We ask why. And God, I pray that as we encounter those times, we'll turn back to you. That we'll remember the reason why. And that reason is because you first loved us. God, help us to remember that today. Help us to focus on you, to get rid of the distractions, get rid of the frustrations that so often happen outside of this building. And I pray that we'll be able to focus on you for this time. God, change us, mold us, transform us. Have mercy on us. Bring us to repentance. And God, I pray that we will depend on you more and more every single day, especially during those times when we ask why. God, we love you. We honor you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John is located near the back of your Bible, a few books before Revelation. 1 John is a really interesting book. It's a book that has left some people confused, some people frustrated, some people encouraged. So you might have any or all of those emotions as we go through this series. But today we're just going to focus on chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Feel free to use one of the Bibles in the chairs if you don't have one with you. And if you don't own one, take one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But starting in 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Now we see a few things in these first couple verses of 1 John. John starts by talking about Jesus. That's a pretty good strategy if you're writing a book of the Bible. Just talk about Jesus. But here's the thing. He says a few things specifically that kind of indicate the challenges that he's facing. The reason he might be frustrated. The reason he's asking why. He uses a few phrases that are really interesting here. He says, Jesus has been heard. That they've seen him. They've looked upon him. They've touched him. Why would John stress these things? Well, apparently there were some people who were leading some of John's disciples astray. John had invested so much time in many of these people. He had preached to them. He had prayed with them. He had laughed with them. He had cried with them. They weren't just random people. They were people that he genuinely cared about. And yet, they're buying into a lie. They're going after false teachers. They're abandoning the things that John taught them from the beginning, the true image of Christ. Now, you might know exactly what that's like. You might have a friend who wasn't a follower of Christ, and you decided that you wanted to reach out to them, and they came to church, and they heard the word preached, and they became followers of Christ, and you rejoiced, and you prayed together, and you read together, and you watched as they grew in their faith. But then all of a sudden, something happens. Maybe it's a tragedy that shakens their faith. Maybe it's just a gradual, slow process. And yet there you are near the island of faith, and you see your friend drifting away. 
And you swim as hard as you can to try to drag them back to the island of faith. And yet no matter how hard you swim, they get farther away. And you mourn. And you weep. Maybe you're a parent. And you did everything you could to raise your child in the faith. You sent them to VBS. You bought them Bibles. You showed them all the VeggieTales movies. And yet, as time goes on, any remnant of faith that they had is gone. And there's nothing you can do about it. You probably know how John feels if you've experienced that. You probably feel a little bit sad, a little bit angry, a little bit frustrated, maybe even betrayed. But you know how it feels, and you know that it hurts. In the case of John's followers, they were following these bad, false teachers. They may have been an early form of Gnostic teachers. Gnosticism was the idea that anything physical was bad. Anything material was inherently evil. And the best virtue was to have knowledge of spiritual things, non-material things, non-physical things. So these teachers would have completely denied the idea that God would ever put on flesh. Because flesh is bad. Flesh is evil. Maybe John is using those words, heard, seen, looked upon, and touched with our hands to try and combat these guys. Maybe it was a group called the Docetics. The ascetics taught that Jesus looked like he was human, but he really wasn't. It was just a costume. He wasn't truly man, the way we talked about in our God with Us series a few weeks back. It may have been a guy named Serenthus. Now, Serenthus had an interesting theory. Serenthus said that Jesus was a man, but Christ was not. And Christ came and lived in Jesus, this ordinary guy, and then Christ left ordinary guy Jesus when ordinary guy Jesus ended up on the cross because God can't go on a cross, right? That's what Serenthus taught. Either way, whichever of these teachings they were buying into, it was false. They had abandoned the teaching that John had given them, the sound teaching that he had given them. All the time invested, all the prayers, all the preaching seemed to be going out the window. And John may be asking himself, why? Now this brings me to my first point. Because he first loved us, it is absolutely crucial that we have a right understanding of who Jesus is. We need to stick with scripture when we look for an image of Jesus. Some people believe that Jesus is exactly the way they want him to look. Republicans believe Jesus is a Republican. Democrats believe Jesus is a Democrat. Capitalists believe Jesus is a capitalist. And socialists believe Jesus is a socialist. And all of them are convinced. Yet, are we sticking to Scripture? Are we sticking to what God's Word truly says about Jesus? Or are we letting our own agendas shape who we believe Jesus is? We need to stick with Scripture. And we need to be very careful if we realize that Jesus just so, ha- Jesus just so happens to fit really neat- neatly into an image like us. That's when we need to be a little bit concerned. But not just that. We need to be willing to stand up to the common misconceptions that abound today about who Jesus is. Some people say he's a good moral teacher and that teacher and that's certainly true but that's not it alone. Some people say he's just one of a lot of brilliant religious leaders 
And they all have value and they're all on the same level. Some say Jesus is nothing more than a hippie who taught that we need to love one another and play with kids and pet sheep the way we see in the picture. Some people say that Jesus was just some character that church leaders made up and he never even really existed. We need to stick with what scripture says about Jesus and we need to gently and respectfully correct the misconceptions about Jesus. A good place to start with that, with that, not just scripture, but it's called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed says this. This is a creed that was developed in 325 AD, a creed that really for the first time was church leaders getting together and trying to understand who Jesus is. So if we can get the Nicene Creed up on the slide, please. It says this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. This is what we should affirm. The image that scripture gives us summed up in the Nicene Creed. That Jesus was not just some created being like you and me. He's always existed. He is eternal. He is sovereign. All things were created through him and for him. He was born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit. He lived a sinless life, being fully God and fully human at the same time, even though that's confusing for us. He died under Pontius Pilate. Crucified on a cross, not just as some little mistaken tragedy, but rather as a sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. The debt that we could never pay on our own. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He lived and he appeared to many people and then he ascended to be with God. And right now he's at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling. And one day he will return and here on this messed up, flawed earth and creation that we know, God will truly be seen. His kingdom will finally be truly seen for what it really is in creation. The consequences, the tainting of sin will finally be gone. These are the things that we affirm about Jesus. Anything less than that, we should reject. We should do it gently we should do it respectfully, but we should correct those who have any less of an understanding of Jesus than that. Let's stick to scripture. Let's correct misconceptions. And because he first loved us, it is crucial that we understand who Jesus is. Pick back up in our passage. We're going to start back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. 
That brings me to my next point. It is absolutely crucial that because he first loved us, we proclaim him to anyone who will listen. We proclaim him so that they can have fellowship with us and fellowship with God. And you know, I'm certainly not saying that we only hang out with people who have fellowship with us and fellowship with Christ. I'm not saying that at all. We should absolutely build relationships with people who do not know Christ, but we are never going to be satisfied with that relationship. There will always be something lacking in that relationship unless we share a common faith. When I was in high school and college, I worked at Kroger with a guy named Fred. Fred was an atheist, a committed atheist, but we got along really, really well. He was probably my best friend at that workplace. We had lots of conversations over the years about faith and about Christ. Sometimes he would give me a hard time, and sometimes I would give him a hard time, and we would ask each other tough questions. We got along great. We had a lot in common. Similar personalities, similar interests, similar senses of humor. But here's the thing. There was always something lacking in that relationship. There was always something missing. Because Fred didn't know Christ. And you know, I wish I could sit here today and tell you that Fred became a follower of Christ and he's serving in a church and he loves God now, but I'd be lying. Fred is still an atheist. I don't know if he'll ever come to faith or not. But we still proclaim Christ. We still share that good news, always hoping that one day Fred will have fellowship with me and with God through his faith in Christ, that will hopefully come. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right now, maybe you're thinking of that one person that you love that you love being with, that you have fun with, that is one of your closest friends, and yet that person doesn't know Christ. Keep proclaiming him. Keep sharing him with that person. Always hopeful that one day they may actually listen. And until then, don't be satisfied with that relationship. Don't give up. It truly is a tragedy if we get to a point where our friends and family and neighbors who don't know Christ, it's a tragedy if that no longer bothers us. It's a tragedy if that's not a concern for us. The second part of this proclamation is that people can only truly be a part of God's family if they understand who Jesus is. That's what John seems to be saying. Some people in pop spirituality like the idea that, you know, we're all children of God. We're all children of God, and that is halfway true. It's true in the sense that all of us are created by God. All of us are created in His image, and as a result, we have inherent value and inherent worth. In that sense, yes, we are all children of God. But the only way to truly be a child of God, the only way to truly relate to God as Father, is through His Son, Jesus through the cross, through his blood, through his resurrection, and through that, in his grace, God adopts us as his family. But until then, we can't be truly children of God. We're separated from God. 
We like to think that we're children of God, and yet there's this barrier called sin. Let's proclaim him to those we care about. Because proclaiming Christ should be our ultimate source of joy. John says that he's writing these things so that his joy may be made complete. John finds joy in proclaiming Christ. He finds joy in obeying the gospel. And his joy will be made complete when those people that he loves, when they know Christ too. When they return to the sound teaching and the sound doctrine and the right understanding of who Jesus is. This past week, I was in Cincinnati taking a preaching course, and I read an article in the Cincinnati Inquirer. I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. Have you ever heard of the Book of Mormon, the musical? There is a musical, the Book of Mormon. It's gotten rave reviews for several years now. It's considered one of the best that you can see. It was on Broadway, and it's coming to Cincinnati. And this newspaper writer decided to interview a real-life Mormon missionary in light of this musical coming. So I want to read a little bit about it to you. 20-year-old James Kimball's daily schedule hardly has the word musical written across it. Up at 6.30 a.m. for prayer, 30 minutes of exercise, time for breakfast, and another two hours studying scripture. Then off to the streets of Florence to knock on doors, strike up conversations in fast food restaurants, and otherwise look for any opening to talk to people about Jesus Christ. Other than eight hours each week to shop for food, clean his apartment, wash his clothes, polish his shoes, and get his trademark short but not too stylishly short haircut, the American Fork Utah native will spend every day of a two-year assignment, every weekend, every holiday, at the spiritual pursuit, not getting back to his apartment until 9 p.m. each night. He worked months in an amusement park to help pay the $10,000 cost of the mission. During these two years, he'll speak to his family by phone just four times, once each Christmas and Mother's Day, and have a single hour each week to email them. Besides not seeing them, he won't see a single movie, TV show, sporting event, or non-religious book the entire time. Meanwhile, he'll almost forget the sound of his own first name, since he'll only be addressed as Elder Kimball. But he also knows that no one outside his faith is likely to grasp the emotional discipline and sacrifice his mission requires of him. The loneliness he endures, the weight of human need he encounters as he taps on doors and he's invited, sometimes at least, into strangers' lives. The missionaries in greater Cincinnati have seen military veterans with post-traumatic stress syndrome, heroin addicts, young and overwhelmed parents, People so alone, there are no other taps on their door. We're dealing with lots of people, real-life problems, Kimball says. We seek out the darkest spots in the Cincinnati area and try to help them see the light. The article ends like this. I know that God is now my Father. I know He is. I know I have the strength to do things I could never have done by myself. And I know I am happier than I have ever been. He says, he picks up a copy of the book that seems never more than inches away from him. I dedicated my life to the things that are in here. Now, let's be honest. You have to commend this guy's dedication to his mission. You have to commend the kind of commitment that he shows, the love for his beliefs that he has. If anything, maybe we as followers of Christ should be a little bit challenged and a little bit convicted about our dedication to Jesus. 
He certainly finds joy in proclaiming Christ, but there's one thing missing. It's that right understanding of who Jesus is. If we proclaim the wrong image of Jesus to those we love, guess what? Our proclamation is in vain. We must have a right understanding of Jesus along with our love for proclaiming him. And we should only find joy when those we care about come to know him. Every relationship that we have with a non-follower of Christ, we have fun with them. We love them. We laugh with them. And yet, there's always something missing until they know Christ. There's a little part of us that grieves, a little part of us that mourns, and a little part of us that holds out hope. I pray that we can have that same dedication, that same commitment to proclaiming the right idea of who Jesus is, the things that Scripture says about him. Finally, I want to look at one last passage Look at verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now there's quite a bit said in that passage. A lot of bold statements from John there. But it brings me to the third point I want to stress. Because he first loved us, we glorify God with our lives. John says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we know him, we should walk in the light too. Yet, he also says that we have sin living in us. And that we're liars if we claim we haven't sinned. This may have been what John's opponents were proclaiming, those false teachers that John's loved ones were following after. So you put all this together. How does this work? We're supposed to walk in the light, yet we have sin living in us. We're supposed to look like God, yet we have sin and God doesn't. How does it all come together? It works because walking in the light is not a means for salvation. It is a response to the greatness of of God. When sinners like us are placed next to a holy God, our sin is exposed. Have you ever seen one of those news reports where a reporter will go into a hotel room and they'll turn off the lights and they'll shine the black light and it will expose all the nastiness and all the grossness in that hotel room? It looks clean on the outside. Compared to other hotel rooms, it doesn't look too bad. And yet when the light is brought in, you truly see that hotel room for what it is, messy, gross, pretty tainted. It's similar with us. We may look okay compared to other people. We may look pretty good compared to the axe murderer, compared to Hitler. But what about when we're put up next to God? Our sin is exposed. Our flaws are exposed. Our imperfections all of a sudden become bright and shining. 
You know what this leads us to? It leads us to an understanding of just how bad our sin really is. The problem with these false teachers is they underestimated the problem of their sin. They seemed to believe that sin wasn't an issue for them. And they made God out to be a liar. And when you don't understand the weight of sin, it's impossible to understand the weight of God's grace. The better we understand our sin, the less we're going to fool ourselves into thinking that we can somehow fix ourselves. The more we understand just how messed up we are, the less we'll believe that somehow we can live good enough to gain God's approval. And when we understand the beauty of God, our response is to fall on our knees. That's why John says that we should confess our sins to one another. Because through that and confessing our sins to God, he will clean us. He will forgive us. The kind of cleansing that we can't provide. The kind of cleansing that only comes from God himself. And know this, there is forgiveness for you. And there is cleansing for you. No matter what your hotel room looks like, no matter how messy your room might be, there is forgiveness and cleansing for you. There's forgiveness and there's cleansing for the dad who got mad and lost his temper on the way to church today. There's forgiveness and there's cleansing for the woman who's sleeping with the man that she's not married to. There's forgiveness and there's cleansing for the people who say that my sin is just too much. If you saw what I have to look in the mirror every day, if you had the regrets I have, if you had the memories I have, then you would know that God could never forgive me. Guess what? He can. There is cleansing and there is forgiveness for all of us, for all of you, for me too. And one thing that's important to understand Walking in the light, our lives reflecting God, it becomes a little bit easier when we understand that it all comes back to Christ. That our salvation is not based on cleaning our own rooms, of getting our acts together, of finding a way to somehow make us look better than we are. Walking in the light, it stops being a burden and it becomes a privilege. It becomes an honor. Dallas Willard writes that grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And I can't stress enough what I'm about to say. Many Christians feel as though they are initially saved by grace. They are initially saved by grace when they first come to Christ. But then, if they want to stay saved, they need to act right. They need to make sure they're living in the right way because somehow if they stop living in the right way, then that salvation, that grace, that blood of Christ is somehow null and void. Christ just gets you in the door. The rest of it is up to you. That is a false understanding. You don't earn your salvation initially and you don't have to earn it as it goes. You don't have to earn the right to keep it. We trust in grace. Every part of our salvation is dependent upon the cross and the cross alone. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who, are lab- all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. 
our lives glorifying God gets a little bit easier when we no longer feel like we have to earn it. It no longer feels like a burden. It no longer feels like labor. It feels like privilege. It feels like honor. And we truly love doing it. But not just that. Walking in the light isn't lonely because we have fellowship with one another. Like John already said, we build one another up. We hold one another accountable. When one of us is discouraged, we tell each other that, no, don't worry about it because you trust in the cross. Trust in Christ. Don't trust in your own will. Don't trust in your own works. Certainly hold one another accountable when we slip up. That's what we're here for. But it all comes back to the cross. We walk in the light together. We don't walk in the light alone. Back to that question of why. As a follower of Christ, do you ever ever ask that question? We know we ask it at our work. We know we ask it in our marriages from time to time. We know that we ask it when we're facing some overwhelming challenge. But do we ever ask that question in our walk with Christ? You strive to honor God with your life, and yet you mess up, and you ask, Why? Why do I even bother? God clearly won't accept me because I can't toe the line good enough. Why should you stop trying to earn God's favor? Because he first loved you. You stumble and you fear that somehow you're unworthy of that salvation that you've been given. You're not proclaiming the gospel enough. You're not giving enough. You're cussing too much. How could, God, how could God possibly still love me? He can love you because he first loved you. You didn't prove yourself worthy. You didn't meet prerequisites. You didn't clean the hotel room a little bit, and then God said, okay, now that you're a little bit more clean than you were before, I guess we can be friends. That's not how it works. Your hotel room was cleaned by Christ, by the blood of the cross. And that's how it stays clean. So when you doubt that the cross is sufficient, why should you still trust? Because he first loved you. We seek a right understanding of God because he first loved us. We proclaim him to the world because he first loved us. And we glorify God with our lives because he first loved us. Let's pray. God, we are humbled that you would ever want to be in fellowship with us. God, you are great. You are glorious. You are beautiful. You are holy. And we are so the opposite of those things. You're the Pacific Ocean and we're a drop in a bucket. Yet you want to have fellowship with us. You want it so bad that you sent your own son to die for us. God, we didn't meet the prerequisites. We didn't earn this. We didn't prove ourselves worthy. You weren't obligated to do it. Yet because you first loved us, we have hope. We have hope in you alone. I pray that we'll dedicate ourselves to having a scriptural understanding of who you are and who your son Jesus is. I pray that we'll correct misconceptions gently and respectfully out of love for other people. 
I pray that we'll proclaim your son to anyone who will listen. That those people in our lives who don't know you, that will never be satisfied with them not knowing you, will never give up. We'll proclaim you unashamedly and boldly and keep doing it no matter what happens. And God, I pray that our lives will reflect you. Not because we have to somehow keep our salvation. Not because we're walking on eggshells trying not to lose this gift that you've given us. But rather as a response to the gift that you've given us. I pray that we won't view it as a burden. We'll view it as an honor and a privilege. God, we love you. We love you. We love your son, Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit living inside of us. God, we find mercy, we find forgiveness, we find cleansing because you first loved us. We love you, we honor you, we praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you don't yet know Christ, 